So good morning, Calvary. I'm David Chan, interim lead pastor right now here at Calvary. We, we're in a season of new beginnings, a season of transitions. Uh, we have some new staff in. We have some new staff planned in the future. Uh, and of course, there's a new year coming around, around the corner. Uh, one of the things that has been really enjoyable to see in this Christmas season is the work of our, of our first-year choir director, Bill O'Neill. Uh, Dr. O'Neill teaches at UTRGV, but he also leads our choir. And he's put together just a really great program of choir and, and uh, orchestra. That's why you see the chairs here uh, for this afternoon at 3.30. If you have a chance, if you haven't been here yesterday, then they're going to do an encore performance today. I encourage you guys to come uh, just to absorb that, that great sense of Christmas. If you want to get that Christmas fuzzy, warm feeling for 75 minutes, just come and soak in it uh, this afternoon here at 3.30. Uh, but he's done a great job as, as our first year, uh, in his first year as our choir director. And, um, and it's just kind of, the, kind of where we are right now. As a church, we're in a season of new beginnings. In the last two weeks, we've been focusing on this as a kind of a theme for our messages this month. What does it mean to, to prepare for a new beginning? How do we prepare ourselves? What does it mean to be people that God would choose, that God would put his honor and favor on for new beginnings? And of course, we're doing that because Christmas is the ultimate new beginning, it's Jesus coming into the world and literally splitting time in half B.C. A.D. and starting a whole new story for humanity. And front and center, front and center of this new beginning Christmas story is the fact that we have been given a king to mark this new beginning. And so that's what we're going to focus on today. And you know, when we think about the word king, it's not so relevant to us today anymore you know, you might think of a basketball team, the Kings, or you might think of some royalty far away in England or other parts of the world. But, uh, but kingship is a really interesting thought because it's really an all or nothing proposition, right? When you submit to a king, they have complete authority. It's all or nothing. It's take it or leave it. That reminds me of my grandmother's house when I would go over to, to her house. She'd have, she would enjoy cooking, but, but she didn't like for people to be too particular about her cooking. So she had a sign on, the, on, on her wall that said, tonight's menu, choice of two, take it or leave it, right? <laughs> that was my grandma. Yeah, she, she, she loved cooking, but you weren't going to have much of a choice as to what you wanted. And, and you know, but that's, that's when, it, when we're talking about Jesus as king, he's really offering himself to us as a take it or leave it option. He's not saying, add me to your menu of choices in, as to who directs your life or how you make choices in your life. Jesus isn't added into our lives to add with all our other isms, right, that we have in our life or you know, uh, whether it's socialism or capitalism or whatever your ism might be, you know, we don't just add Jesus to another religious system or whatever. Jesus has come, and if he is king, then he's either king of all, Lord of all, or not at all. And we're going to look at how that passage this morning uh, highlights that. Today, we're going to look at the kingship of Jesus through the lens of one of the most popular, but perhaps the least understood stories of Christmas that we find in the Gospels, the story of the Magi or the wise men, or the three kings, whatever you might want to call them. And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So I'd like to invite you to stand. These verses are going to be on the screen. But we're going to stand for, to honor the reading of God's word from Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And we'll read it from the contemporary English version. And the word of God says, When Jesus was born in the village of Bethlehem in Judea, Herod was king. During this time, some wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and said, Where is the child born to be king of the Jews? 
We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard about this, he was worried, and so was everyone else in Jerusalem. Herod brought together the chief priests and the teachers of the law of Moses and asked them, where will the Messiah be born? They told him he will be born in Bethlehem, just as the prophet wrote. Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, you are very important among the towns of Judea. From your town will come a leader who will, who will be like a shepherd for my people Israel. Herod secretly called in the wise men and asked them when they had first seen the star. He told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, let me know. I also want to go and worship him. The wise men listened to what the king said and then left. And the star they had seen in the east went on ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. They were thrilled and excited to see the star. When the men went into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, they knelt down and worshipped him. They took out their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh and gave them to him. Later, they were warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they went back home by another road. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. You may be seated. So if you follow along with us, we're bouncing back and forth between uh, the Gospel of Luke and the gospel, gospel of Matthew, because Luke and Matthew really tell us the most about the Christmas stories. And so last week we looked at Luke's passage, a passage in Luke, and the previous week in Matthew. Now we're back in Matthew chapter 2. And we're, again, we're looking at a story that may be well known. Maybe you have images of it. You know, you've probably seen nativity scenes and these three kings or wise men bringing gifts to Jesus. But there are a lot of questions about this very mysterious scene, actually, that Matthew paints for us. I have questions such as, how many wise men were there? You know, we naturally assume that there were three because there were three gifts. But I remember I got caught, I think, in college sometime during a, a fun Christmas quiz that that was a trick question, right? How many wise men were there? Well, we don't really know because the Bible doesn't say there were three, right? We assume there were three. We even sing songs, right? Like, we three kings of Orient are. Um, but that's a little bit of an assumption, and it's not necessarily, you know, far from the truth, but we don't know how many there were. Uh, and, and who were they? Were they kings, or what does it mean by wise men? Were they astrologers, perhaps? Were they sorcerers? We'll look at that a little bit more in just a moment. How did they know? All right, because if you're going to see, these guys are not from there, right? Uh, those of you who, you know, grew up here in the 956, you know what that means, right? When you talk about 956 kind of things, and you can tell when people aren't from there, uh, kind of like someone like me who has a different area code, right? Uh, but I'm actually, I've been here twice. So I'm, I'm kind of both here and there. But uh, where are you from? You know, sometimes it's a question we commonly ask. And you can tell sometimes when people aren't from around here, right? Well, these magi are not from around here. And it's obvious. And we'll look at that a little bit more as well. Because if they weren't from there, how did they know about this king of the Jews, as they call him, that was going to be born in Israel, and did they come to the manger, or did they come to a house, or did they come to the city? Where did they come? And, and what is the meaning of the gifts? I think that's also a very big question that people have asked through the ages. What is the meaning of these gifts that the Magi brought? So we'll look at some of these questions this morning. Some scholars conclude basically that, that wise men is the best term to call these people, right? So we'll start there. Uh, the Greek term here used by Matthew in the scripture is sometimes transliterated into English as magi because it's similar to the original word in Greek, but it basically describes a class of wise men and priests who were astrologers, most likely, and they were, they were most likely uh, astrologers who practiced Zoroastrian religion. 
And Zoroastrian religion was a, was a religion that was mixed in the culture of Persia, which back in those days was Persia, now is modern day Iran. And there's still remnants of that religion today in that part of the world. So these were basically Persian priests practicing an astrological-based religion called Zoroastrianism. And they came from the east, it tells us here in the, in the scriptures, right? In verse one and two, they came from the east of Israel. So that we know for sure. So if you look at a map and you look, well, okay, what's east of Israel? East is that way, right? <laughs> what's east of Israel? Uh, you see on the map, you see Jordan immediately there and then Iraq and then Iran. So it's very likely that we're putting the pieces together that they came from Iran, which was back then was known as Persia. And there's speculation that the book of Daniel had been widely circulated among scholars in Persia, in Iran. And we'll look at that uh, as to how that may have happened here in just a moment. Daniel is an Old Testament uh, prophet who obviously honored God, followed God. He's one of those that we looked at like last week. Who, who does God put his favor on? God saw Daniel as someone of integrity and righteousness, and he elevated him to a high position in the kingdoms of Babylon and Persia at that time. So God may have worked through Daniel to make this knowledge known to these wise men. But in the scene here that Matthew paints for us, we also see another king. We see not only the, the kings or wise men or priestly leaders who come from Persia, but we see a local king, and he's known as King Herod. Now, Herod the Great was a historical figure. It's well known in history, documented. He ruled Judea with the support of Rome, because remember, Israel at the time did not have its own kingdom. They had been captives under empires for centuries at this point. And Rome was the latest empire that had dominion over the people of Israel. So they put someone in charge of that area, and that person happened to be Herod the Great. And he was known as a ruler from 37 BC to about 4 BC. He was known for two things, extensive building projects, including the temple in Jerusalem. And so that's kind of, there are still remnants today of things that he built 2,000 years ago. But he was also known for his cruelty. He was a very cruel ruler. And if you read the rest of the story, you find out that he ends up murdering um, countless numbers of young boys in an attempt to try to murder this king of the Jews. So into this story that Matthew's given us, we have a local king, we have royal priests from far away coming together around the puzzling new birth of this king. And in verse two, it says here that he's called king of the Jews. But that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? I've just finished telling us that for centuries, there had been no kingdom of Israel. There had been no kingdom of the Jews. So why do they call him king of the Jews? And of course, that naturally alarms, or as, as, as uh, this passage that we read says in verse three, it worried Herod, you know, it worried Herod. He's like, okay, he's hearing there's a new ruler in town. And he's thinking, wait a minute, I'm the ruler. I'm the one that Rome has put in power. So he is perhaps worried in the jealous kind of rage of anger kind of way. But it says that the people of Jerusalem were also troubled or concerned. And I wonder, whereas Herod may have been worried because his power is being threatened by this birth of a new king, I wonder if the people had more of a concern of wonder and hope thinking, wow, could it be? Could it be that after centuries, this promised Messiah is actually here? Could it be that our time has come? But the story reveals so much more. It reveals that as these magi come and as Herod is in the picture, that these, I believe Matthew writes about these precisely as reminders that Jesus has come to be the king over all kings, king over all kings. If you're taking notes, that's the first point for this morning's message. 
I believe Matthew is deliberately talking about these wise men, this King Herod, and he's contrasting that with who Jesus has come to be. He's the king over all kings. After all, in verse 11, you read that the Magi came and they fell down and worshiped. And that image is not just like some, some humble, honorable, you know, slight bow, maybe, you know, a very courteous. It, the, the, the Greek idea here, the Greek word is that you, are, you throw yourself down to the ground as a sign of devotion before a high-ranking person or divine being. That's the language that Matthew's using here. So these respectable wise men from another country come all this way, and when they see Jesus... They recognize he is the king over all kings. He is the king of the universe. And they bow down. They throw themselves down in worship of him. And as they do that, we know that part of the story is they bring out gifts, right? We, they bring out at least three gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And these were gifts that were worthy of a king. There's a lot of thoughts about what these gifts might have meant or what they were for. But what's clear is that they at least symbolized kingship in the giving of these gifts. After all, these were royal priests, right? They recognized the kind of gift a royal person would deserve. And so gold is the first gift that we see, and it's symbolic of Christ's deity as king. Uh, gold has been, throughout the years, throughout the ages, gold has been that precious metal that humans value the most. Even today, right? There's, uh, gold is now priced at over $2,000 an ounce. I remember when it was around $400 an ounce, and I wish I would have bought a lot of it back then, right? Um, but I couldn't. And so um, gold is symbolic of deity and royalty, and it always has been. It always has been one of those standards in the world of high value. And then the second element we see here is frankincense. Now, you may have heard of incense, and frankincense is very similar. It's used in, in, in religious ceremonies, and it creates that, the, a beautiful scent uh, through the air during religious ceremonies. And this represents Jesus as a priest. Not only is he king, but he's also a priest of God. And the third gift we see is myrrh. Right? And myrrh was suggesting that he was anointed to work as a prophet and that it would anoint him in his death. Uh, myrrh was used for anointing. So as you know, prophets used to be anointed kind of as a sign to say God's, God's presence is on you. We recognize the work of God through you. But we also know that Jesus' body was anointed for burial. And so myrrh is foreshadowing what is to come as Jesus lives as a prophet of God. Paul would one day wrap those three concepts together of king, prophet, and priest. And he would put it this way in Philippians 2, verses 6 through 11. Paul says, Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God to, something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Here we see Jesus serving as priest, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Here's his anointing as prophet. And therefore... God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's a powerful, beautiful rendition of Paul writing in Philippians 2 of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, and that he's coming back to rule and to reign over the world and all of us. 
So Jesus is king above all kings. We see that in contrast with Herod. We see that in contrast with the wise men coming from the east. We see that in the gifts that are given to him, gifts worthy of a king. And what does that mean to us today? What does it mean that Jesus is king above all kings? Again, maybe kingship is not something that we resonate with in our modern world, right? But it means to me a couple of things. It means that, that whoever is in power out there, right, whether politically in governments or economics or whatever you conceive as the power brokers out in the world, they are not above the power of King Jesus. Amen? And I think that's a powerful thing to remember. It's a good thing to remember because, you know, humans with power tend to mess up. We tend to make things, you know, not good for other people, especially as that phrase goes, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And yet it's a great reminder that Jesus is king above all kings and one day he is coming back to rule and to reign and to make all things right under his domain. And so nothing can, can happen in this world outside the rule and reign of God and Jesus as king of all kings. They will one day be accountable. Everybody in authority, everybody in power will one day be accountable. They will also have to bow their knee, as Paul says, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody with power and authority will one day have to submit that to Jesus as king of all kings. So that's what Matthew first shows us. He shows us a picture of this Jesus who is not only this beautiful savior born into the world, but that he is the king of all kings. And the second thing we see in this passage of Matthew is that he is the king of all creation. All right, where do we see that? We see that in this concept of the stars. Let's take a look at that. In verse two, it says that, that the, the star rose in the east and they followed it. Now, there's a couple of times that Matthew uses the idea of in the east, all right? In verse one, he says the Magi are from the east. And that is a geographical word that Matthew uses. He uses the Greek word anatoli, anatoli. It's the word like where the sun rises. It's in the east. So it's a geographical word. So literally, the Magi, the wise men are coming from east to west. But when he uses the word of the star rising in the east, he uses a different word. He uses the word anatole, which is, a, which is not a geographical distinction. It's an astronomical distinction. In other words, there's like a map in the skies that Matthew's pointing to here. And when he says the star rises in the east and, and it is moving uh, in the direction of which the direction the Magi are supposed to go, it was as if they were being guided by the star. And you've seen that, right? You've looked up at the, at the stars, maybe uh, far remote outside the city where you can get out there and you can see how sometimes this, you know, this set of stars will be here, other times of the year it'll be over there. It just depends on the movement of the universe. And so Matthew's making this distinction here. The Magi are from the east, but this star is part of an astronomical uh, figure that is moving and guiding these Magi. Now, what we typically picture with this scene is perhaps a picture like this one. When we think of the Christmas nativity is maybe this just glowing halo of a star that's shining a spotlight on when Jesus was born. But in reality, it probably looked more like this. This is a more accurate, perhaps, vision of what it looked like. You see that bright object there on the, on the left side of the screen. This is an example of what's called the Christmas star. It's called the Bethlehem star. I don't know if any of you had a chance to see this back in 2020. Anybody remember the Bethlehem star? that was actually being out, um, it was out in the night sky and there was a lot of buzz about it because for the first time in 800 years, we were able to see this star. Now I put star in parentheses because what it actually is, it's a conjunction or a coming together of Saturn and Jupiter. 
And it had not happened in 800 years. And it creates this very bright, visible presence in the sky. And it won't happen again in our lifetime until March of 2080. And so this is something that may have been possible. And in fact, uh, the, the scientist, astronomer, mathematician, Johann Kepler, in the year 1600, he began to study the stars. And he was a mathematician, right? So he could line it all up, and he was he, he able to design uh, this, this, this solar calendar vision of when things were happening. And he was able to, to, to go back in time and see that in the year 6 BC, approximately that year, that there was an alignment of not only Saturn and Jupiter, but Mars as well came into the picture. And it created this bright, temporary star in the sky for a period of time. There's been a lot of different theories about that. Uh, there's been a series, including in a documentary called The Star of Bethlehem. But it's, it's, it's amazing. It's incredible. The things we know now in science, we can go back and we can see that the solar system actually operates like a giant clock. And Matthew didn't know that, right? Matthew didn't know that when he wrote this, but he describes something that to him was a mystery and that today to us can be explained with some scientific uh, precision. Now, even though it can be explained with scientific precision, we can say, oh, there's a possibility that these planets came together and it created this star that was in motion through the sky that helped guide these wise men. While all that can be true, I also want to propose to us that it could have simply just been a miracle, <laughs> right? It could have just simply been God putting some kind of light in the sky to guide these wise men. If you remember in the Old Testament, God guides the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness with what? With a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day, right? So God could have done it as a miracle because God, by definition, is supernatural. God, by definition, is supernatural. He's made creation. He's outside of creation. He's in creation, and he's above all of creation. In fact, all creation is made by God and for God. Genesis 1.14, when God is creating the world and he puts the stars in the sky, he says one of the reasons the stars are in the sky is to be for signs for you, uh, for, for humanity. And Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. And in Colossians 1, Paul says that everything in creation is made by him, for him, and through him. So the Bible is very clear that all of creation belongs to God. And whatever God did that night or those nights uh, over Bethlehem, whatever he did, whether it was just a miracle or if he created this celestial triple conjunction of planets to align perfectly and guide these wise men at that time, whatever he did or however he did it, Matthew tells us that this is what God did to bring people together so that people would know that this Savior being born was not only king of all kings, but king over all creation. And what does that mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus is king of all creation? I think one of the most essential things is that we are called to be good stewards of it. As long as we live on God's earth, we're called to be good stewards of his creation. And it makes me wonder sometimes, are we taking good care of it? Are we doing the little things that we ought to do or can do to take care of this good creation God has made that is meant to proclaim and declare the glory of God in the world. So we see those two things. I hope you're seeing it with me in Matthew, that Jesus is king of all kings. He's king of creation, of all of it. And the third thing we see comes from verse six, where Matthew quotes Micah, the prophet Micah, chapter five, verse two. In verse six here, Matthew quotes him when he says, let me go back here and read it. 
Bethlehem in the land of Judea. You are very important among the towns of Judea. From your town will come a leader who will be like a shepherd for my people, Israel. Now, that's an interesting passage. That's an interesting phrase that Matthew uses because Micah is basically trying to, to pump up Bethlehem because Bethlehem was a no-name town. It was not important. It was not the capital of anything. It wasn't a, a port or a place of economic importance. And so Bethlehem is this place that, that nobody really cares about. And yet Micah the prophet declares this and Matthew repeats it, that even though Bethlehem was insignificant, from this very insignificant place, the king of the universe would come and be born into the world. And I think one of the things we can draw from this is that it's a reminder that what may seem least significant to others can be very significant, is very significant in the sight of God. And I think as we're talking about Jesus and, who, and, and how he is the king of all people, that's, I think, what we can draw from this, that he is the king for all people of the world, even the least of these, even the, the, those that are considered forgotten or insignificant. After all, remember, who are the first, some of the first people who heard the announcement of Jesus' birth? It was shepherds, right? And it just, it's not because they just happened to be out in the field. The angels could have gone anywhere. But they proclaimed the good news to shepherds who were some of the humblest, you know, lo- least important jobs at the time. And I think God does this very deliberately, very intentionally. He even says, I'm going to bring the Savior out of Bethlehem, this no-name town that nobody cares about, because I care about all people. Everybody is important to God. And I think this is super helpful for us because the world naturally divides itself, don't we? We naturally divide ourselves into religious factions, political factions, economical statuses, social statuses. And yet Jesus' birth reminds us that the ground is level at the foot not only of the cross, but the ground is level at the foot of the manger. In other words, anybody and everybody are welcome to worship Jesus. Kings and shepherds were equally welcomed to come into the presence of King Jesus. And today all are welcomed to come into his presence. I see here not only that humble people or people that might seem insignificant to others are welcomed into God's presence, but there's also an international flavor to this passage that we see. Remember, these magi come from the east, from Persia, and they come from a different country and culture, and they're coming to see a Jewish king. And so that begs the question, right? How did the magi know about this Messiah in the first place? Well, I think it's because God makes sure, he makes sure that the nations and the people that are far from him have a chance to know him. And the example I think we see that from is in Daniel chapter six. Remember I mentioned earlier, Daniel was a captive. He was, he was from Israel and he was taken captive during that period of time. And he was taken to Babylon, which was then conquered by Persia. All right, complicated history there if you don't remember it. But basically Daniel served under two empires and Daniel was given a favor and honor. So he rose in the ranks of leadership in these foreign empires. And so he had influence and he had clout, so much so that some of the local leaders started being jealous of Daniel, right? And if you know the story, they devise a plot so that the king, King Darius, has to sign a decree and it ends up working against Daniel. So he ends up being thrown into Daniel's den, Daniel's den. He ends up being thrown in the lion's den as punishment. But if you know the story, you know what happened, right? The next morning, King Darius sees and the lions have not touched Daniel. 
Uh, they were hungry lions. Right? They didn't throw people in just to lions that weren't hungry, right? But miraculously, God intervenes for Daniel. And this is what the king of Persia writes in Daniel chapter 6 as a result of that work of God. He says this, Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and revere the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. This is Darius, the Persian pagan king, writing about Daniel's God. And it says, so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. This is hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. And here we see God setting the stage so that God, this, who was at that time known as the Hebrew God or the Jewish God, would become known among this vast empire of different peoples and languages. You see how God is always at work to make himself known among people who are far from him, people who don't know him. And I believe that through Daniel and through his faithfulness and through the work of God in Daniel's time, it's why the wise men had these records in their Persian culture of this God of Daniel. It's why they were also studying the prophets. It's why they were also anticipating the king, the, which they call the king of the Jews, but he ends up being the king of all peoples. And as they come and they find him, they throw themselves down. I, I, I can't imagine the feeling they must have felt, not only of finally getting there, finally finding him, but that feeling of being in the presence of the king of the universe, the one that the world had been waiting for. Although a lot of people had forgotten, a lot of people had not been looking anymore, these wise men were still looking. They were still looking for the promise of God to be fulfilled. And as they came, what did they do? They bowed down and they worshiped. They worshiped. That was their response. Jesus is, is the king of all people. And if he's your king and my king, how do we respond to him? Do we truly worship him? I'd like to point out four ways here as we conclude in which these wise men worshiped. First, they gave the gift of their time. And that's interesting to see here, right? Because this journey was not a short journey. Uh, they studied, they took their time, they went on a long journey two ways, right? Both there and back. And they had to encounter Herod, a king who wanted to murder this Jesus who'd been born. And so they sacrificed a long time and effort to give to this search for a king. The second thing they gave is their talent, all right? They, they gave their talent because they had to follow the stars. They had to follow this directional guidance in the stars in order to find this king. They gave of their talent to find him. They also gave of their treasures. And that's obvious. We see that in the scripture here, right? They desired to worship him. They thought of him as a king and they brought him gifts fit for a king. But you know, that's easy for us to relate to, I think. Time, talent, and treasure. Maybe some of us give time to God as we volunteer in church or in other good organizations. Uh, maybe we give of our talents by, by doing things again that you're good at and you offer it occasionally, whether it be in the choir or worship team or some other way in which you serve. Maybe you give of your treasure when you give your finances to, to church causes or other good causes. These are all good ways, I think, that we all can relate to and worship. But there's a fourth way in which 
the magi, the, the wise men worship that I think is the most important of all. And that is that when they came before Jesus, it says that they fell down and worshiped him. And in doing so, they acknowledged both his lordship and his kingship. They declared through their lives that Jesus was their king. So I'm calling that the gift of testimony. They gave Jesus the gift of testimony. In other words, they were saying, we're bowing down to this king and he is king of all of us now. He is king above our Persian king. He is king above all my own desires, my own wants. Jesus is now in the throne of my life and I will live out a testimony for the rest of my days. Because I can only imagine all the stories that they would tell all the way back on their way, on their journey home. What might they have said when they went home? Could they have lost their lives perhaps when they went home? Because now Jesus was their king and not whoever their local ruler was. They gave Jesus the gift of testimony. And that's the gift that you and I, I think, are challenged to give Jesus the most today. Do we willingly represent Jesus if you're a follower of Jesus? Are you, are you willing to say, Jesus, have, I want you to be Lord and King over every aspect of my life so that wherever I go, whatever I do, people see you as my King. I'm led by you. I submit to you. I surrender to you. And you know, the best thing about that is when you give all of yourself to Jesus, he gives all of himself back to you. And I think sometimes we're afraid. Sometimes we're afraid of releasing control. If, what am I going to lose when I give Jesus my kingship? Oh man, if you've ever done that, if you've ever surrendered to Jesus, you know that we gain far more than what we lose. We gain far more quality of life. We gain so much better things. We gain better perspective. We gain the things that we talk about every Christmas, hope, peace, love, and joy. And we gain those things in abundance. Is Jesus your Lord? He was the Lord of these wise men as, he bowed, as they bowed down and worshiped him as king. And so Jesus, the question for us today, is he your king? He, if he's king over all kings, then he's coming back and every ruler and authority will have to give accounts to him. If he's king of all creation, then we better steward it well on his behalf until he comes back. And if he's king for all people, then let's make him known to everyone, including those who are far from him. It's why Calvary devotes so much time and energy into what we call missions, where we send people, we send funds, we send resources to some of the farthest parts of the world because, some of the, because in some of those places is where Jesus is least known. And we want to do that. We want to be involved in making Jesus known among all people. But bottom line for us this morning who are gathered here is, is that simple question. Is Jesus your king? As we seek a new beginning for our church and maybe for you as individuals, keeping Jesus Christ at the center of your life as your king is the best place to begin. So how will you worship him? Will you worship him with your testimony? Will you let him be king over your entire life? Because as the phrase uh, that's out there is still true, wise men, wise women still seek him. Let's pray. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the story of the birth of Jesus. And there's so many amazing, incredible sights that we can see but thank you for Matthew painting this picture for us of Jesus being worshipped by, by foreign kings who, who maybe didn't even have a reason to give him allegiance. And yet they came and they, they knew somehow that you were special. 
that you were above all, that you transcended all earthly power and authority. You were above every culture, every preference, and that as they worshiped you, their lives were changed. I pray that that would be true of us today as well, Lord, that we would acknowledge you as our king, that we would be willing to surrender our lives to you as king of all of us, all of our lives, every aspect of it. And so that in doing so, we would honor you with our testimony. We would give to you our time, our talents, our treasures, but more than everything, we would give to you a life that lives for you, that represents you, and that wants to make you known among all people. Lord, we pray for those who are far from you today. Maybe there's someone here in this room who's never said yes to you. I pray that today they would say, yes, I want Jesus to be my king, the king over all kings, the victorious one who's coming again and who's gonna make all things right and new. Or Lord, if there's some of us here who've been Christians for a long time, help us to recommit our lives to you, that, that you would examine us and that you would take lordship and kingship over every aspect of our lives. I'd like to invite you to stand and as we sing this last, the song of response, if you wanna pray and respond to Jesus where you are, you're welcome to. I also invite you to come over here at the edges. Somebody will be here to pray with you if you wanna make a decision. Respond now.